Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to a very special last episode 100 of the Cost for Pointcast. Yes, we finally made it to 100. I'm your host, Trevor Shackles. And joining me for one last time is friend of the show, Ian Mendez, who has been dealing with this wicked storm in Ontario recently. Ian, first of all, I really hope everyone's okay over there, and we've sort of had our own ordeal uh, just trying to get this podcast set up. But second of all, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day. Uh, I know there's been a lot going on over there. Yeah, you know what? There has been, and and, and as frustrating and uh, as it is for me and my family to be without power, without hot water, electricity, internet, you know, all those, uh, all those things. Um, you know, we took a drive around our neighborhood uh, a couple of days, what are we, Wednesday, whatever, Monday, Sunday or Monday. And, you know, to see the devastation in the homes that are damaged, the schools that are damaged, trees, roads, we actually feel lucky. So I, I know just before we started recording, I was venting to you about being angry and upset. That's probably just a function of me being, you know, agitated and, you know, not having, uh, the things I'm used to having, like internet service and uh, you know, charged up phones, whatever. But I do. I hope I didn't come across as being un- ungrateful because I'm no. like I'm super, super grateful that I'm not spending my days speaking to an insurance adjuster or trying to figure out how to get a new car or figure out you know all these things that people are mm-hmm. are are dealing with uh, in our in our city right now. It, it's been a really look. 2022 has been a really tough year in our city um, with with the convoy with you know, now this storm and, and COVID and, you know, just, it feels like it's a never ending wave sometimes of, of, of stuff that's gone on. But I, I, at the, at the same time, I do think it's brought our community closer and I, I can't believe the amount of people that have reached out to me uh, and my family to help us. You know, we've gone to people's houses for meals. Uh, you know, Brent Wallace, uh, who people know from the Wally and Mathot, uh podcast, longtime broadcaster. Brent Wallace actually came to my house yesterday uh, with a gas generator. And that's how we're doing this podcast, Trevor, is yeah, because of Brent, uh, hat tip to Brent Wallace uh, for bringing me a gas generator. Otherwise, I would have had no internet, no computer, no power, nothing. Gotta love Wally. And, yeah. you know, I just got to say, like, I, I said this to you before the podcast, but just for the listeners, I mean, this just shows your your dedication. I mean, I, I certainly would have been fine if we had to, to move this podcast to a later date and stuff. But, man, you're just really appreciate the, the dedication and uh, yeah, as you were saying, obviously, there's a lot of people out there with, um, you know, some some devastation to deal with. So my heart goes out to the people of Ottawa and hopefully, well, I mean, not even just Ottawa, just Ontario and Quebec in general. And hopefully if you're listening out there that your things are OK and, um, you know, able to be fixed. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough time. But um, yeah, shout out to Wally for uh, for giving that generator. And, you know, uh, we can record this this episode 100 here. Yeah, exactly. And listen, it's a it uh, it's uh, pretty cool that you reached out to me. I know this is a significant episode for you, um, number one hundred, and 
you know, sounds like it. Now, is this it for you? Like, this is 100, you're done? Yeah, so, I mean, I mean I'll mean, i say this in the outro as well, um, but I, I think it's pretty much like a, a long hiatus. So, like, you know, maybe in a few years, if I really have something to say, maybe I'll, I'll record one. But for all intents and purposes, it's essentially the last one, yeah. But, I mean, every time I've had you on, people are you know, re- really love the episode. So it was a no brainer for me to, uh, to have you on this episode. Well, Hey, listen, I, I appreciate it. And look, I'm like, now I'm just a curious guy. Um, like for you, was it just, you, you wanted to get to that number 100 and then, Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that's, you know what? Uh, because as you know, like when you follow the senators, like, like people like you and I do, um, there are dozens of podcasts out there like mm-hmm. that. And some of them just only make it, eight episodes or 10 episodes. And then they realize the amount of work it takes to put a podcast together. It's not as simple as, Hey, let me just turn on my computer and hit record and, and go. Uh, there's a lot of planning and it, it takes a lot of, of your, um, uh, you know, your, your, your mental energy, right. To, to, to put into this. And, and so, Hey, listen, if you feel like it's, uh, it's time for you to take a break from it, I think that's, that that's probably the right call. Here's what I think you should do though, Trevor. I think you should say the next episode of cost per point, will come on the day the Senators clinch a playoff spot. Ooh. How about that? So next April, right? Well, whenever it is. Next <laughs> April, two Aprils from now. You know what? Whatever. Not a bad idea. Not a okay? bad idea. And I will gladly be a guest on the, the on clinching day. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like that, you know, because as go. you say, it definitely is time consuming. But yeah, if it, if it was like a, you know, in a year or two time, I, I'm cool with that. But um, I, I like that idea. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, now... Obviously, the the biggest story over the past few months has been the the passing of Eugene Melnick, and obviously, so much to talk about him. But before we get into other specifics, how can you best summarize the the nineteen years that he owned the team? Wow, that you know what it's it's a great question, right? Because I think it's a very very mixed legacy. Um, is there some positivity? Absolutely, there's some positivity. There is you know, stepping in and, and purchasing the team at a time when it didn't feel like there was a lot of people lining up to buy this team and keep them in Ottawa. Um, Eugene Melnick did that in 2003. Eugene Melnick spent money to get Jason Spezza, Danny Heatley, um, you know, that core of players, um, Daniel Alfredson, to kind of keep them together uh, in that 06, 07, 08 era and and you know he did he 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 spent close to the cap there i I think the year that they brought alexi kovalev in like they were pretty darn close to being a cap team uh at at the time and uh they kind of went from a a a top six or seven spending team to a bottom five or six or seven spending team and and so i think we kind of saw the full like i think we saw the full gamut of emotions uh under eugene melnick you saw the the you know, the euphoria of some, some memorable and deep playoff runs, whether that's 07 and going to the cup, whether that's Hamburglar in, in 15, uh, the, the great run in 17. I even, I love the, the, the two playoff runs that I think get overlooked are in 2012 and 2013, the kind of uh, pesky sense edition. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think we certainly saw as high points as we've seen in the, in the 30 years of this franchise, some of the highest points came, under the ownership of Eugene Melnick. And then the si- the simultaneous part to that is I also think we saw some of the worst parts of this um, you know, fan experience in in the in the stewardship or under the stewardship of Eugene Melnick. And so we're talking about the Exodus of Star players. We're talking about disconnects with 
uh, legacy players. We're talking about, um, you know, the stuff that Katie Strang, myself, and Dan Robson, I think, did a pretty good job of detailing, um, you know, some some sort of, um, we'll, we'll call it toxicity in the workplace. Um, you know, things that I, I don't believe that, that people in Ottawa necessarily stand for um, were happening and happened under his watch. And so um, there was a lot of things. Bro- I think broken relationships, like if you're asking me, if you could summarize the Eugene Melnick era in two words, I think broken relationships comes in mm. because it's not just Daniel Alfredson and Chris Phillips and Eric Carlson and, and you know Stone. It's um, it's business people. It's season ticket holders. It's staff members. It's politicians. It's media members. It's you know go down the list and 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 I'm hopeful that we're uh, you know uh, Trevor we're at the precipice of a new era here where we can put some of those hurt feelings in the past um, that, that it's time to repair relationships. And um, I, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the case, but, but man, it was a what like it was a wild run. That's a 19 year run under an owner that I, you know, I, I, I don't know that any other team in Canada, maybe even in all the NHL had as colorful as, controversial as fun at times as contra- like you know negative at times two decade run as Ottawa just had under Eugene Melnick you know what I think like pound for pound in terms of how big of a city Ottawa is which isn't very big com- compared to other markets I think pound for pound they had the most newsworthy things coming out of the team right like like you said just there's so many things positive and negative and and controversies and stuff that came out so I just feel like and and even today, like I would say, it's it's a never a never ending, you know, never ending stories. And it's just I feel like it's um, it's never a bland time to be a Senators fan, really. No, and you know it's funny, right? Because it, externally, now are you still on the West Coast? Like, yeah, you're out. Okay, so like I mean, but like even the perception where you are of what Ottawa is as a city is we're very dull, we're boring. Mm-hmm. We're the government. We're right. We're the town that fun forgot. We're the, you know, government town where you send your taxes to, and yeah, you know, all that stuff. Well, I would argue that, uh, you know, from a from an entertainment perspective, like you said, from a from a almost from a juicy storyline angle, we provided this city provided as many juicy storylines for NHL fans as any other franchise in the last you know seven eight years where. Where th- there was that one period from, you know, and, and it was probably right in that Uber incident window, Carlson Hoffman, uh, you know, Randy Lee was in Just there. an insane window. <laughs> it, 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 did you not feel like every, <laughs> and I, every day is probably a stretch, but, but like, you know, every week you'd like kind of open up Twitter and be like, I wonder what's going to happen today. <laughs> yes. Like, it was crazy. It was, un- it was unhinged lunacy there for uh, you know, whatever, six months, eight months, 12 months. And, and it really feels like it's calmed down. It, it, it absolutely feels like it's calmed down, but there was a window there where it was like, man, this is like, like, this is what, like, what, like the New York Knicks or, um, you know, you know, pick it, pick a franchise that always seems to be in the news for negative reasons. Um, that was Ottawa for, for, for a short period of time there. Well, yeah. And I remember reading an article, I think, maybe around 2018, 2019. And I can't remember, it might've been like the ringer or something, but it was like a, a quite a big American publication. And they had an article about how Eugene Melnick is the worst owner in professional sports. And like, 
So th- this wasn't just a, a local thing or a uh, even an NHL thing. It was a thing that was, you know, talked about a lot over, you know, across North America. But obviously, as you, as you say, like, sort of has, has this, you know, controversial, well, not, not controversial, I guess, but just weird legacy where obviously he, he saved the team and, and all that stuff. But um, I, I'm curious about this article that you briefly mentioned earlier. And of course, I'm sure most people listening have read already, but that was with Katie Strang and, and Dan Robson. And first of all, it was an excellent piece with some fascinating stories. And I'm not sure if you're like at liberty to discuss everything. And I'm sure other parties that answer those questions weren't at liberty as well. But do you think that article is essentially just kind of like the tip of the iceberg in terms of what went down over the past two decades? Yeah, you know what? I am. Um, it's a great question. I I don't think that everything uh, that we reported is the whole story. So yeah, I mean, now whether or not you want to say it's the tip of the iceberg, you know, do I think it was like you know, for like if I'm okay, if I'm gonna put a percentage on the iceberg that 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 we kind of exposed, yeah. I, I'm gonna go to about forty percent, forty to to fifty percent of what kind of you know was probably like there, let me put it this way there's more to that story and um it to me it's a fascinating tale like like eugene melnick to me will go down in history as one of the most controversial owners like like and i, and I think in a lot of ways trevor he was a throwback to an era where sports owners were larger than life and kind of singularly dominated um, the news cycle. So think George Steinbrenner, Harold Ballard, Marg Schott, um, you know, the, the, these owners that were just, you know, this, the, like, Jer- I would put Jerry Jones on that list. Like, owners that, like, when you think of them and the team, they're synonymous. Like, like I always say this to people, like, can you, and I'll add, you're a huge hockey fan, right? Like, you're, you're a huge yeah, hockey yeah. fan. <laughs> Can you picture what Jeff Vinnick looks like, the owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning? No, not at all. <laughs> you have no idea. You have no idea what Jeff Vinnick looks like, and and neither does do most people in the hockey world. Like at, like passionate fans like you and me don't know what Jeff Vinnick looks like. So that's where Eugene was different. Like Eugene was the guy who just you know he he craved the spotlight, he craved the attention, and so uh, he, to me he was a fascinating character. And we worked on that story and. I know, like, like, and listen. You want to ask me about the timing? I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about any element of, of the story. I, I don't ever want people to think that I, you know, man, Ian, Ian got really weird and quiet when, uh, you know, Trevor asked him about this. Or no, not, not at all, <laughs> not, not at all. Like, like, I think this stuff is really important. Um, and you know, we worked on that for several months, and obviously, um, you know, Eugene's poor health was something that came across our, our radar, and we were aware of it. Um, but we were always pursuing one thing and one thing only, uh, Trevor, and that was the truth. And and my biggest regret in all of it is we couldn't get all of the elements together in a time in which we could have put him or held, or sorry, held him to some degree of accountability while he was still kind of cognizant, healthy, um, and 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 able to 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 answer these types of questions. I, I think by the time we got to it and. And, and I know that there's people out there saying, like, you waited till he passed away to, to drop that story. Like, no, we didn't. Like, it it just, I want people to understand the difficulty 
of trying to put a story like that together. Like, look, ask Katie Strang. Katie Strang, who's far more versed in investigative reporting than I ever will be, um, will tell you that that was one of the most challenging stories she's ever had to overcome because of the institutional barriers that were put up by the team, by ex-employees, people that were just scared to talk because they didn't want to be sued. And and then I see people saying like, oh, Ian and Katie and The Athletic was afraid. They, they were just afraid of being sued. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we were never, I, I want to make this really clear. Like, we were never afraid of being sued because you can't be sued for the truth. But you got to prove the truth. Like, you can't just come out and say like, well, I heard that Eugene Malnick did this, or I heard that these people didn't get that, or what. You can't come up with conjecture. You have to come back with full-on, um, you got to come back with full-on facts. Journalistically, your piece has to stand. And that requires, like, multiple sourcing on things. You can't hearsay, conjecture, and rumors don't fly. So... Um, it, it was fascinating to me to try to put that story together because, you know, people would hang up the phone on us and say like, yeah, I'm not talking to you or other people would say like, I'd love to help you, but I can't, or like, it was just, you know, honestly, mm. I, I think back to it and it was really a, um, I think it, it's made me a better reporter, but yeah, you know, it, it, it was certainly a story that we had to dig and dig and dig to try to get to the truth. And even what we exposed just to go back to the original question I don't think we exposed everything that happened under uh, under his uh, his ownership of the team. Right. Yeah, well, and I'm curious what you would say to to people because it, it seems like there were, I would say majority of fans understood the timing and they understood that, you know, it, it needed to be said. But, you know, there were some even, I won't say names, but, you know, even some media members that were annoyed at this story and... Um, so I don't know, what would you say to those people who are sort of annoyed at the timing? And like, are you are you frustrated that there were a select few, not not a ton, but a select few who were sort of coming at you for that? Oh, no, no, not at all. Like, I, like I, I knew when we were getting close to putting that story out that at, at, at whatever point we put that out, we were going to take some heat for it. So I, I understand it. Like, I, I also don't want people to think that like, you know, I put we put the story out, and I don't want to hear about your complaints. Well, no, I I, I understand it. Like I understand the optics. Like yeah. I'm intelligent enough um, to know that the timing of that looks awfully suspicious, right? Like like let's be honest here. Whatever, 18, 17, 18 days after he dies, this story comes out. So I understand it. Like I I, I completely understand it. The thing I would say to my critics, um, whether they're in the media or or, or otherwise. Um, would, would, be, would be two things. Number one, I would say um, nothing that we reported was not true. Like everything we reported was multiply sourced, 100% accurate, not a single detail out of place. Like not a single I was not dotted or a T was crossed, okay? So um, I think if anything was in, I think that there would have been legitimate grounds um, for criticism if our reporting was erroneous or inaccurate, I, I think that yeah. I honestly, Trevor, that would have crushed me if, if we put that story out and a day later, the senators and, and people came out um, and said, hey, this is wrong. That is wrong. Because then it kind of throws your entire reporting into jeopardy. So the first thing I would say is to those people, look, everything we reported was true. OK, everything we reported was true. And so when you realize that everything we reported was true, the next question is, why didn't this come out earlier? 
And that's the question every media member needs to ask themselves. Why didn't you pursue this story? Why? Why didn't you pursue this story? That's all I would say. And, um, you know, it it, it took me, you know, seven, eight, whatever it was, months to, 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 to try and get to this with with the help of two other senior reporters who are far more, um, like I said, well-versed in investigative reporting and deep dive reporting than I ever was. This is my first kind of venture down this road. Um, but my question would be, I think collectively, we all need to be accountable to people like you, Trevor, and, and, and Senators fans. Why didn't we do this story earlier? Like, like the, 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 the big takeaway I have, uh, Trevor, is not why did the story come out uh, so late the question is why didn't it come out earlier and therein lies the great philosophical question about media coverage of teams journalistic objectivity access to players access to executives uh, all, transparency all like it's a really interesting case and i i said this on i think i said it in a live room at the athletic or maybe it was on another podcast i i don't even i can't even remember now because it all kind of jumbles together. <laughs> but the one thing I will say is at some point, I would love for some journalism school, and I'm a Carlton guy, so you know Carlton would be the, the place, but I would say hey, Carlton or Ryerson or Columbia University or Syracuse or someplace with a, a, a really renowned journalism school. I would love for them, somebody to come and do an investigation on the media coverage of the Ottawa Senators under Eugene Melman. And mm. why did it, like, how and why did it get to this place? Like, I'm fascinated. And I don't want to throw stones. I, I hope people don't understand. Like, I'm trying to out people. Like, I just, like, I'm I'm to blame here. Like, I'm I'm as much to blame as anybody. Like, like, and so this is what I want to make very clear. I don't want to point fingers. I want to take responsibility. And I want to let people know, like, hey, I should have done this sooner. I Like, I waited till whatever, 2021 to kind of pursue this story. Like, why wasn't I doing this in 2019 when it was obvious that there were red uh, flashing lights, that, that something's wrong under the hood? I ignored it. And and I'm willing to apologize for not acting sooner. And, 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 and the times that I did try and call the organization out, I think we've all seen kind of the, 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 the backlash I got. And, you know, it's uh, it is what it is. It's but I, I I would be open to hey, let's all just have let's all have a debrief. Like let's all get into a room and say like what the bleep happened here? How did it get to this point? And then more importantly, how do we make sure that this never happens again? How do we like 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 what bothers me, Trevor, as a, as a person of color, is that there was some racist stuff that went down and some misogynistic stuff mm. that went down. And some homophobic stuff that went down. And that was on my watch. Like, and I say my watch, meaning like I covered the team while that was going on. Did you see anything from me? You didn't. And that that's embarrassing to me. I should be, I not should be, I am. I'm embarrassed that that stuff happened on my watch. And I hope that other people who cover the team feel the same sense of, hey, I let the city down. I did. I know I did. And my vow is I'm not going to let it happen again. I apologize that it ever got to that point. Um, and I hope that the people in power moving forward will hold themselves to a degree of accountability to the fans to say no more racism, no more homophobia, no more misogyny, 
No more of that that stuff that obviously was prevalent there. Um, that the media, like, to, in order for the stuff like that to happen, Trevor, media has to be complicit, and th- and I mean that in that you don't, um, you don't do your job, which is what I, I like. If we did our job, which is to call out this stuff, this doesn't happen. It doesn't get this bad. But we just kind of. We kind of were like, wow, that's Eugene, or that's the way they do it, or whatever. Like, we wanted to guard our access to the team. That's not the right way to do it. So I would love to, like I said, love to get in a room with every, like, all the, you know, eight or ten media people who have covered this team in the last decade, you know, fairly closely on a beat or what have you. Uh, the, the, the the PR people that have been there, um, the general manager. The, the Let's all get into a room and say, like, what, like, what happened here? Like, and more importantly, don't point the finger at somebody – just step up and say where you think you would be better. And that's that's what, you know, I'm trying to convey that here. Um, that's that's what I would do. So it's really interesting to me the way that this all happened. I just, I hope that we vow to be better. Like, because I think what we're doing, we're demanding like the organization has to turn the page and I hope the organization is better. Well, I damn well hope people like me in the media are going to be better moving forward. Too. Like this can't just be like the media is like we're really good at doling out criticism. We're not so good at taking it. We're not so good at looking in the mirror. And that's what I want us to do collectively as a group. Let's look in the mirror. And um, if people want to, you know, lob some insults at me and bombs, that's totally fair. Like I get it. Like I understand where you're coming from. And I'm telling you, I hear your criticism. I'm taking it and I'm using it as feedback and I'm going to be better moving forward. I, I just kind of hope everyone can can kind of do the same thing. See, I think that's fascinating that you're giving yourself flack for this. And, you know, I, I do appreciate that you're putting yourself at a you're, you're giving yourself a high standard. And, um, you know, if anything, I found that your coverage at The Athletic has been, you know, the most it's not like you've been unfairly critical of the team, but you've just told it like it is, um, you know, not every not a, every media member in Ottawa has done that. So I think I and lots of other people have really appreciated the fact that you're just sort of had laid it out in the past and um you know hopefully as you say in the future with whoever's owning the team it can continue to be like that and and sort of more open and transparent it seemed like a lot a, a big theme of Melnick's tenure was that he really couldn't take criticism very well um it just seemed like you know you heard some stories about Melnick and and you know wanting to shut things down or or coming after people who were criticizing him and things like that so i don't even necessarily blame people like you who you know, didn't want to talk about certain things, but, um, you know, having that sort of high standard is always good. And I sort of also wanted to transition to a question about the future of the team then. And, you know, like, like what you think the most realistic scenario is here, because obviously Anna and Olivia Malik, it's up to them to, you know, what they want to do with the team. But like, is there an actually a realistic scenario that they continue fully owning the team or do you think they're going to have to bring in some people to sort of help them along and at least, um, you know, where there's some fresh new faces, even if they're still either majority or minority owners? Yeah. Like, like so if you're asking me, like, hey, what do I think will be the – like, and let's go to a year from now. So let's go to, like, you know, whatever. Let's even say June 1st, 2023. Like, what do I think the ownership structure – of the auto centers will look like. I think somebody, another entity or party will be the majority owner, Trevor. And I, I like, I do think, and I'm going to put the number at 10% and, you know, we could probably go 5% either way. 
that there, uh, like, I wouldn't be shocked if there's some sort of legacy stake for the Melnick family there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, like, that, that, so that's my super duper educated guess here at the end of May of 2022 is that they'll give up majority ownership. And I think it's going to be curious, like, interesting because, um, and I, I've reported this a couple of times in the athletic, at least in the print side of things that, you know, and these are from firsthand conversations. This isn't from, I heard from a friend of a friend and like, these are firsthand conversations with groups that I know are interested in purchasing the team and keeping them in Ottawa and, you know, possibly looking at a downtown arena and all that stuff. Like I know of multiple groups. Like I, I see people saying they're six or seven. I don't know about that. I I'm very comfortable saying multiple, multiple groups. My question becomes, do the Melnick, uh, daughters, do Anna and Olivia decide, let's put it on the market and try and kind of, uh, you know, raise the value here. Um, I also think that if they do get to the point where they do slap the for sale sign on the team, I think Gary Bettman handles the sale. That, that I feel very mm-hmm. confident saying that if they do decide to go down that road, Gary is in charge. Like, in fact, I would argue that Gary's probably running this or steering the ship now more than we we can ever imagine. Um, and so, my guess is they're going to try to figure out how they can work with somebody to, you know, maximize or you know, kind of monetize the team to the best of its ability. I do think that there is a real push to try and kind of get LeBreton Flats approved through the hockey club. And, and and I think a lot of it is they, they, they want to frame this as one of Eugene Melnick's last acts was, look, he got LeBreton done. Look, like on in February 28th, he signed the letter, whatever the date was, and they put in the bid. And shortly after he passed away, they, they accepted the bid. And while I understand the thought behind it, I personally don't agree with it because I I believe that he he kind of submarined or torpedoed the original bit. Like that's just my opinion. Like I, I'm based on the conversations I've had, I, I feel that they had a a deal in place, and I think it got torpedoed. Uh, but if that's important to the family that they want to frame it that way, have at it. But but I think when you get to the point where there is an arena that needs to be built, you're going to need to bring in partners. And then, so yeah. it's going to be really interesting, Trevor, to watch this unfold. I just, I think we're in for better days with with a fresh outlook uh, on this team, and it's uh, hopefully an exciting time for uh, for Ottawa fans in the you know in the next twelve months or so. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely. I think every single fan, maybe people in Canada wouldn't want to rink in LeBreton, but I think everyone else would. And yeah, like you said, I think it would be cool for Anna and Olivia to sort of have um, that legacy status. And, you know, they if they want to be around the team, they can. I think that would be that'd be pretty cool. They can sort of be young faces for the team. And man, I it's just very exciting thinking about the possibilities of of, you know, several groups coming in. 
um, or at least bidding on the team and having a huge impact on this team in terms of its financial resources. And one final question about Malnick here, because obviously there's so much to, to discuss here. But so you touched on your personal relationship with Eugene in the article, which was, you know, complicated because several years ago he would be checking in with your family. Um, and then the last few years of his life, he hadn't been returning any of your messages. Did you ever take that personally or do you just sort of see that as part of the business essentially? Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a good question. Like, and, and I did. I had a really good – like Eugene treated me so well for so many years. Uh, would, you know, constantly text with me or email me or connect with me and be a guest on my – whether I was on Sportsnet, be a, a television guest, on TSN 1200, be a radio guest. And then I think the tipping point for our relationship was was probably the outdoor game. And um, I think I was, um, in his opinion, I was overly critical at, around that time about the direction of the franchise. And, and um, you know, I, did, did I take it personally? No, because I think there's a pattern there. If you look at, you know, my relationship with Eugene, it's a really good um, anal- or um example of how most of his relationships went in Ottawa where it started out really well with somebody and then it just for whatever reason it went off the rails so if I was by myself on an island I would probably think to myself like ah damn did I did I do something wrong did you know did I was I unprofessional did I you know but but when you look around and you're like well there's Daniel Alfredson and there's Cyril Leader and there's uh, you know Jim Watson and there's um you know, go go down the list of of of, of people who had uh, good relationships with Eugene, um, and then it, it you know um, it evaporated. Jim Little, Tom Anselmi, uh, you know, I, I could go. You know, we all know the we, we all know that. Um, yeah, <laughs> that I'm thinking of the picture there of you know everybody um, that's been kind of you know out with the sands. You know that yes, picture yes. of everyone. Yeah, yeah, I've seen I, that. I, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of the, what what that meme was. But anyway, you know yeah. what I mean. So. Like, I don't feel any sense of, like, uh, you know, personal bitterness. Um, I understand that human beings are complicated, and Eugene Melnick was complicated. I don't think he was pure evil. Um, I think there was a lot of good in him. And I think there's a, like, it's a it's a, like it's a battle between good and evil in all of us, right? Like, not all of us are, are inherently good people, mm-hmm. and not all of us are inherently bad. Like, there's of, often the little the little battle that we have, the internal struggle. And, and sometimes the, the bad side wins out more often than the good. And I think, I think that's what happened to Eugene towards the end um, that, uh, you know, I, I don't think he was ever really the same. Unfortunately, after he had the, uh, the liver transplant, I think it, it probably altered his behavior a little bit. And, um, and I don't think he was ever the same. And so um, I never took it personally. I, you know, the last time I think I reached out to him was, probably i think it was 2019 going it was like december of 2019 going into 2020 i just sent them a text or it might have been an email now i can't uh, to be honest actually i think it was an email and i said listen just i know our professional relationship is as you know kind of falling apart i just wanted to take a moment to wish you and the family happy holidays and uh, you know hopefully wishing you all the health in the future and you know hopefully we can reconnect and you know i never never heard back from him and, and that's okay I, I i don't take that personally i um mm-hmm. i i you know i don't take it personally if his like if his daughters are don't ha- ever have an interest in speaking to me after our reporting i i understand it i'm i'm okay with that i i just um i just want to be somebody who's known for pursuing the truth 
and sometimes it sucks that the truth um, has to be so negative and uh, has to be so uh, full of uh, you know emotions and stuff. But I'd rather be known for the guy that uh, pursued the truth than the guy that pursued relationships. And so um, if I had to lose a couple of professional relationships to pursue the truth, I'd, I'd rather do that. And so that for that reason, I don't necessarily take it uh, take it personally with uh, with him. Right. A fascinating 19 years owning this team. Like I said, we could go, we could have an entire episode just talking about Melnick. But so I really, really appreciate your thoughts on on him there. Now moving to the team, which I mean, we're in the off season now. There's a lot to look forward to with the draft and free agency. Now the first thing is the draft, of course, and the Senators hold the seventh overall pick. Do you are you getting any any indication as to what they're hoping to get there in terms of of a position or if they might even want to deal it instead? Uh, well, so I think this is interesting. I know Pierre Dorian. I haven't even had a chance to listen. I know Pierre Dorian was on uh, TSN twelve hundred on on Wednesday and, and kind of was asked about this exact question. I and I do think that his answer was something along the lines of "We're open to moving the pick if it makes us better right now, right?" And so then the names come up: the Kevin Fiala is the big one, and um, you know, go go down the list and, and think uh, Brock Besser or you know whoever you think might be that elite winger. I, I you know I'm. I'm of two minds on this one is that um, I understand making the move. And I look, I, I would probably endorse a win now trade. The only way I wouldn't endorse, like, and I'm going to use Fiala as the example. If you're going to trade away that seventh overall pick, um, you better make sure that the entity you're trading for has some sort of term on his deal. And, yeah. and, and I think three years, like anything, Two years or shorter is not enough for me to give up a a first round top ten pick. But if the if the guy has three plus years on his deal, then I'm okay. I'm okay with it. Um, so that that would be my only caveat. I go ahead and make the trade. Go ahead and try to win now. Um, I think Pierre Dorian and DJ Smith are at the point in their contracts where they need to win now. They they don't get another free space on the bingo card. They got to win now. And I think they both men both men know. The only way they're going to win now is to have a better roster for next season, and that means probably giving up some some future assets. Well, that's the thing that you touched on too, right? Is um, in your article from a few weeks ago saying just how rare it is for both coaches and GMs to miss this, the playoffs this many times in a row before getting fired. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there had been a GM that had missed the playoffs six years in a row without getting fired. So. Like to me, this this is the time to act. I don't think they need to necessarily, you know, move the farm or something. But getting someone like Fiala would be huge, and doesn't necessarily have to be exactly him. But yeah, like I just I just don't know how they can. I don't know how they can go into the off season and not act with some urgency. I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I and I and I and I'm blanking on that uh, that article, but I know. I know that if the Senators miss the playoffs this year coming up and Dorian keeps his job, or regardless, he would be the first general manager to oversee a team to miss the playoffs in six straight years in the yeah. cap era. So think about <laughs> like the salary cap era is a pretty competitive era where, you know, general managers often don't get, you know, five, six, seven years to implement a plan. Um, so this would be unprecedented in the cap era. And, I do think that there is some pressure on them. And I and I almost feel like they kind of got to come out of the gates fast, right? Like, like I, I like let's say in the first 20 games, I kind of feel like they have to have 10 wins. 
Like, and, and I don't care if they're, if they're 10, 7, and 3, great. But I feel like they have to have 10 wins. I feel like anything, like if they have anything fewer than 10 wins, if they're coming out and they're like, they're 8, 9, and 3, or they're kind of scuttling along, I don't think that's going to be acceptable. I think there's going to be a lot of people saying something's got to give. And so that's going to be really interesting um, to see. Cause I th- and I think when there's pressure for you to perform right off the hop, th- that means that there's pressure for you as a general manager to construct an optimal roster in the summertime. Like you don't get 25 games to tinker. Like you got to come out of this October 6th or whatever the opening date's going to be and, and, and be ready to go. For sure. And I guess, well, I kind of want to talk a bit about some specific names um, afterwards, but just getting back to the draft for a second as well. I don't know if you've like done a whole lot of, of research. I know personally, this is probably the least I've known about any draft, which is strange considering Ottawa is such a high pick, but I don't know. Is, has there been anyone that you have sort of gravitated towards in terms of who you think would be a good fit for the sense? Well, you know what? I'm, it's funny. Cause we kind of had to do a mock exercise in, uh, with the athletic on, on, on the day of, uh, of, uh, the draft lottery. Right. So everybody who mm-hmm. was kind of in the draft lottery mix there had to make a, a pick and it kind of got to me and I'm looking and I'm like, you know, there, there's a couple of defensemen near the top of the list. I think it was it Simon Nemich and, uh, uh, um, I don't think that they'll be around like when Ottawa picks, like I could be wrong. Like, like if you're asking me if they're there, I think you'd take them because as we've learned here, like you just can never have enough high end defensemen. Um, but, but the one guy that I find kind of uh, interesting is uh, uh, the Kemmel, uh, uh, Joachim Kemmel, uh, yeah. the kid out of uh, Finland. Um, he's a guy that I think, came out of the gates like he exploded out of the uh in that liga last year the Finnish elite league there and he was like the best player in october he's like the youngest player to win player of the month then he had a shoulder injury and he kind of kind of went away but the feeling is like the real uh kemel is the kid you saw in october and a lot of scouts i think were like yeah you know what i think he's got the spe- speed the skill and he could probably be a top six guy. like that would be the guy i would look at because i don't know that you're going to get some of the other guys that, you know, might be, you know, potentially on the radar there will will probably end up going uh, before Ottawa picks at seven. Yeah, I definitely like Kamel as well. I think he would fit perfectly behind Drake Batherson or ahead of Batherson potentially later on. Um, like, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of guys potentially. And, and I mean, obviously you want to go with best player available, but it seems like there's not much of a consensus. And as we know, the Senators never really go with that consensus guy anyway. Um, I, I feel like I should mention a couple guys from the States who, I mean, you, we know they love taking players from the U S development program or the USHL in general. Um, there's guys like Frank Nazar. I think he could be fantastic pick potentially on the wing. And then two names, Ian, my two favorite names from the draft, Cutter Goche and Rutger Mick Grordy. What fantastic names. Oh. And they're both good players. My God, we need Rutger to make the team and play on line with Angus Crookshank. Yes. Right? Like, this would be unbelievable. But it's funny that you bring up um, uh, Frank Nazar because, like, I think if you looked at, like, and again, I'm not as familiar with this. I'm, I'm with you. I'm not as familiar. I'm just kind of getting my feet wet on this draft class. But, like, if you looked at, like, the um, like kind of a boxes that you check for Senator Scouts, like you, the, like the, the the adjectives you heard about the Nazar kid are always like, you know, he's tenacious, 
and you know kind of plays a good two-way game and like you said he's a uh, national development team guy and i know i think he's is in michigan i think he's committed to michigan yeah uh, yeah but but like again like he, the scouts are like you know he's probably got kind of second to third line offensive skills and maybe maybe he'll top out as a second liner but he's going to be projects out safely as a third liner i'm like yeah this guy seems exactly like the type <laughs> of guy ottawa would pick and i'm not saying that in a bad way like like i i think they've uh shane pinto is a great example of a guy that they drafted, and at the time, people were like, "Oh, Ottawa reached on Shane Pinto." And hey, I, I think he he's sort of proven himself. I mean, obviously, Ty Boucher is one that um, is going to be under a lot of uh, scrutiny in the in the years to come. But um, I, look, let, let's let's keep our fingers crossed. That the, and I I know if this is famous last words for me. Let's hope <laughs> this is the last time they're picking in the top ten. Like yeah. I, I I don't know that I can say that with any degree of certainty but let's hope that this is the last time that we're kind of paying attention to the top of the draft in this particular fashion well that's the thing i mean yeah they they really can't i mean i guess if they got like connor bedard next year if they if they moved up really high and then won bedard that'd be fine but then again like i also want to make the playoffs so yeah it's the rebuild should be over and um it'll be fascinating to see which guy which guy none of us expected them to take, they end up taking. Um, which, as you said, I mean, it could be a Pinto scenario where he ends up being a lot better. You know, maybe it ends up being a Boucher situation where, although he could be an NHLer, I, I don't know, I, I'm not really loving that pick uh, one year later. But nevertheless, they've they've proven that they can take guys who are sort of under the radar. So I honestly have no idea where they're going to go and it'll be it'll be very interesting to see which which guy that they value higher than most most other scouts. Uh, yeah, I agree. And look, I, I want to get like Tyler Boucher is such a like he's such a like he just strikes me as a really upbeat fun kid. For I, sure. I you know, in, in the times that I've dealt with him like I I just want to see the kids uh have a fair chance. And and, and a lot of pressure. I, yeah, and I what I feel really bad for him is that like he didn't ask to be drafted tenth overall, right? Like it's not like you know yeah. he he was one of these guys like please, like obviously every kid wants to be drafted as high as possible, but it's like you know it it's a little unfair. Like I, I'm willing to give him like I think this year coming up for him is going to be a big one, right? Like where we can you know hopefully see some some development from him and a little bit of growth and and more importantly like just stay healthy. Like that seems to be a concern of his is the ability to stay healthy. I know COVID uh, kind of bit him a couple of times, but even beyond that, it's just, you know, finding some consistency and it's tough, right? Cause you, you, you watch Columbus, for example, you're like, damn, like Cole Sillinger looks like kind of an NHL ready player right now. And Ty Boucher feels like, okay, he's a project. Like there's, there's no two ways around it and projects work out. All projects can often work out, but it's going to take some time. And um, you, you look at Cole and you, uh, Sillinger, and you think like, wow, he probably would have played in Ottawa's lineup for uh, for a good chunk of last season. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, as as you say, like it's, it's such high expectations being picked tenth overall. So you know, hopefully over the next few years, he can sort of refine his game. And um, I'm assuming, I guess he has one year left in the O, right? Exactly. He's got one, his yeah. last year in, in the O and it'd be great. I could just come yeah. in and just dominate as an overager. Like just exactly. dominate. Yeah. You know, get get ninety five points, get 
you know, get get into a playoff run. You know, that that's the ideal scenario, I think. Uh, but then again, playing in Belleville might not be a bad thing either. So, uh, again, mm-hmm. I just think it's a big, big year for him uh, coming up. For sure. Now, getting back to something that we briefly touched on before. Um, so, Dorian has talked about things that they need to add this offseason. And um, I didn't listen to his press conference earlier today, but I did see a few tweets and he was talking about wanting to add a top forward and a top four defenseman, um, which was actually kind of surprising because although I don't think Travis Hemenick is a top four defenseman, I kind of thought that Dorian would would sort of, I don't know, satisfy his needs, I guess, by, by getting Hamannick. Um Besides those, like, if Ottawa does end up getting, let's say, you know, Kevin Fiala and this whatever mystery right shot defenseman, do you think that's enough for them to be a playoff team? Or, like, what else do you think they need to add this offseason if they actually want to make that jump? So my biggest concern isn't even what they do, Trevor, to be honest. Like, okay, so let's say they add the top six forward, a top four D. Okay. And and I think the other thing is, like, get some clarity in goal. Like, get some get some clarity on, on Matt Murray and what you're doing there. Like, like that that's a big part of it. My bigger concern is there's too big of a chasm or, like, a, a gulf between the haves and the have-nots yeah. in the Eastern Conference. The Islanders are the only team that are kind of straddling in the middle uh, of the non-playoff teams. Everybody else, it's like you got to take a quantum leap forward, A, and then B, someone needs to take a quantum leap backward. Like, in, in, in order to overcome a 30-point deficit in the standings, it's going to require you improving by, you know, 15 to 20 points and somebody else uh, – taking a uh, a step backwards by, you know, 15 points or, you know, something in that, in that neighborhood. And as I look at it, I don't see it happening for Tampa or Florida or Toronto. I do think that Boston is in a precarious spot where, you know, Patrice Bergeron retires and they make some, you know, coaching decisions and things. I, I could see Boston being vulnerable. I could see that. But when you've made the playoffs every year like Boston has for a decade, you earn the right to be a playoff team until somebody tells you you're not. And then on the other side, yeah, listen, Pittsburgh, I think, is in for an interesting summer. Washington looks beat up. But again, they've made the playoffs for a decade straight. Um, I'm, I'm not sitting here to tell them that they're not going to be a playoff team. And uh, Carolina has, I think, almost pushed themselves into that same breath as uh, the Panthers and the Leafs and that they're a perennial playoff team in the last few years. So... Really, I mean, the Rangers are a little bit of a funny team, but there's not a lot up for grabs in the East. Yeah. So um, I'd love to see Ottawa at least give it their best shot and, and take a take a swing at it. But a little bit of this is going to be out of their control because they're going to need at least one, if not two teams, to regress next season. Yeah, that's the thing. It's definitely going to be very tough. Like, that is that is such a huge jump to make. And even... Like, even just their bottom six still need some reworking to do. I mean, like, they had some good players make some some good appearances, like Parker Kelly and Mark Kasselik and stuff. So it's not as if they don't have guys who can play there. But they definitely need some improvement. Now, in terms of actual names, like, is there anyone besides Kevin Fiala? And, like, obviously, we've talked about Claude Giroux a lot. Um, you know, he's certainly an option in, in free agency. Is there anyone else that you're sort of looking at as guys who could be good options who might not necessarily be as expensive? Yeah. Like, I mean, like I, I see that like Travis Konechny is an interesting one to me. Um, 
you know, he's he's clearly kind of fallen out of favor in, in or something seems awkward in Philly with Konechny. So he'd be a guy to kick the tires on. I've always been a Brock Besser fan. Like if you're looking for that type of just kind of goal scoring stuff, but I know that he's got a lot of um, you know personal stuff that he might want to get back kind of closer to home. Uh, that that maybe Ottawa is not necessarily the best place for him. Another guy from Vancouver that I'm curious about is Connor Garland, and mm. um, I, I you know I don't know that I'd be willing to part with my number seven overall pick for a guy like him, but I think he's a control. Of what I, I don't have cap friendly up in front of me, but um, like I think he's got a you know a controllable contract for a couple of years. Um, he's you know he's a guy that I, I see him being like a good middle six kind of guy like like you know my question would be though can he click with timmy stutzla right like that that's my my question but if if they're able to put drake batherson with stutzla and put norris with kachuk and then maybe matthew joseph plays up there with 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 norris and kachuk and then maybe a guy like him you know whether it's garland or whoever else plays with stutzla batherson maybe it's maybe it'll work that way but um i'm curious how this is going to play out because again my only point is, if you're going to give up that number seven overall pick, it better be for somebody who's worth it and with term. I don't think Garland is worth it in terms of value, but certainly the term is probably there. But, um, you know, so those are just, again, top of my head, those would be some guys. It, it makes you wonder, like, like you know, a guy like Vlad Tarasenko, who was available last year, you think to yourself, like, man, like, could they have had Vladimir Tarasenko? Um, yeah. Could they, could they have made a pitch for him? Could they have made a play for him? Last year when he was kind of asking for a trade, who knows, right? Like, but but all, the reason why I bring up Tarasenko is inevitably there's going to be another Tarasenko this summer, right? Somebody somewhere is going to be like, I need to get out, or I need to make a you know make a uh, you know uh, change the scenery or something, and and maybe that's where you can try and capitalize on on somebody or, or look at those kind of cash strapped teams that um, are going to need some space and, and need to get rid of somebody in that five six seven million dollar range. Yeah, like I'd love to see Dorian take advantage of a team that, you know, he he did it like once or twice in terms of like acquiring picks. The one I can think of is the Coburn deal where he essentially got a free second round pick. And yeah, I'd love to see him do that in terms of an actual player. Um, I just looked up Garland's contract here. It's it's quite favorable. I mean, he signed at 4.9, 4.95 for the next four seasons and he's only yeah. he's only 26. So like, yeah, that is, I don't know, but because of that, Canucks might be asking for a lot. They might be asking for that seventh overall pick, which, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if, like, he got 52 points last season in uh, 77 games. I feel like if the seventh overall pick is kind of in that 50 to 60 point range, you might be happy. So, I don't know. I, I'd i be hesitant to move that as well, but Garland would certainly be a good option, or at least someone like that. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, I knew, I knew he was under some sort of controllable... <laughs> Deal. Like that would be a great deal in terms of um, the profile of a player, right? 26 yeah. year old, four years under 5 million, right? Like that, you're really not going to get. And I think Connor Garland to me is like a legitimate 20 goal guy. Like I'm not yeah. looking for, um, like I, I think that's what Fiala is too. Like Fiala had a career year this year, but let's, let's just assume that he is a 20 to 25 goal guy. And if he exceeds that 20 to 25, great, but kind of pencil him in for that. So it, it's going to be interesting. I, I think, if Ottawa can get, um, if Ottawa can get a player like that, an impact, ready to go, somebody who's not thirty-two and kind of on the downslide, but somebody like twenty-four to twenty-seven 
to come in for a couple of years, that's uh, to me, um, that, that's got to be plan A. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now, what about, like, I haven't even thought too much about defensemen. Like, are there any defensemen that have even been on your radar? It just, it feels like there's always way less defensemen available, of course, because teams don't want to move them and, and not many good ones reach free agency. But is there anyone that would even make an impact on the second pairing, potentially? Well, you see, and this is, like, you know, I go back to last year when, like Ryan Graves was the guy for me yeah. last year. I'm like, man, like Ryan Graves available, trade multiple second round picks. How about like, Devon Taves too? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, Devon Taves the year before, like trade two second round picks. Like go, just do it. Like if you got to throw in a second round pick and a, one of your young defensemen prospect, just go ahead and do it. Like, like Ryan Graves was sitting there last year. Taves the year before. There's going to be another guy like that this year. And, um, you know, I, again, I don't, I should have had Cap Friendly in, 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 available <laughs> so in front good. of me, but, but usually you can get a pretty good sense of, you know, teams are going to get rid of, um, you know, certain guys or, or they're going to price themselves out of their uh, situation. And, like, for me, I, I think this is where Ottawa, like, you got one opportunity with Ottawa to kind of, um, what's the word here? Like exploit your cap situation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have a ton of cap space and there's a bunch of heavyweights that have no cap space. So now's your time to use it. Like use it, like make three-way trades where you're eating cap space in order to get an asset to go, like whatever it is, but now's the time. And, and there's no, to me, there's no real excuse for not getting, you know, a, a, a top four or five defenseman and a top six forward because the market will be probably full of them or teams will be ready to trade them and you'll have the space to do it. Like it, to me, it's go time in Ottawa. And, and you know, here's hoping that they can, uh, they can get something done. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited at the prospect of getting one, hopefully two of those players slightly worried about who exactly Doran thinks those good players are, but It'll be interesting nonetheless. Now, we're talking about obviously like who they should add in the offseason, but what do you think fans should actually hope for next season? Like what yeah, what 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 we should hope for, but also what do you think is most realistic in terms of their season outlook? Um, I think it's funny. I'm gonna say probably exactly what I said going into this year, which was, you know, if they can get around eighty five to ninety points and hang around the playoff spot until after the trade deadline, that would be a successful year. And that's what I said this year. And I'm going to say it again next year. Um, I'm, I'm, I think everybody's tired of the, of the, you know, the poor starts and the, the, the inconsistency and all that. So mm -hmm. I'm also very cognizant that this is a, this is a stacked, um, this is a stacked division and a stacked conference. So like, if they were in the Pacific division, I'd be like, yeah, they should, you know, they should push for a playoff spot. Cause yeah, you know what? I, there's no reason why they can't do what LA did this year, but I, I don't know. I don't know that they will. So let's, let's, let's say, let's go to 90 points and let's, let's, let's be competitive. 
and let's be a team that doesn't sell at the deadline. Um, but again, I feel like a broken record. I feel like I said that in 2021, yeah. 2022, and now I'm saying that going into uh, to 2023. Yeah. You know what? Yeah, like ultimately, if they if they make it close, if they're within like five points of a playoff spot, I can't be too mad because as we've been talking about, like it, it is going to be extremely hard to make it in. But yeah, like if it's the trade deadline and they're and they're completely out of it and like we have nothing really to cheer for, it's just going to be so disheartening. So, and and I guess the one silver lining with that is that we're almost certain big changes will happen if you know if the team fails again because probably no new ownership i don't think they're necessarily necessarily going to have smith and dorian on a, a very long leash so yeah I, the team could look quite different i guess going into 23 24 if you know if they don't make the playoffs and they're still not succeeding well yeah listen like we said earlier there's never been a general manager to oversee a team to miss the playoffs six straight years in the cap era you know, DJ Smith, if he misses the playoffs in four straight years, that's you now you're into some pretty un, uncharted uh, uh, territory. Um, you know, I think Thomas Shabbat will get a little bit more restless. And I'm certainly not suggesting restless like, hey, I want out. I think more restless like, hey, give me some damn help around here. Like, like that. that's the message. So it there's no way mediocrity is going to survive around here for another year. No way. And... Um, and the bar has been raised. I think Shabbat and Kachuk made it clear in their exit meetings. The bar is going to be raised. And now it's up to the general manager to raise that bar and raise the talent level in the offseason. And then then it'll be on the players and the coach to then, uh, you know, raise that bar. But, you know, first up on the t- – the first guy off the tee is is Pierre Dorian, and, and we'll see what he's mm-hmm. got in store for the summer. Absolutely. Now, one section I wanted to briefly talk about to finish off the episode here is the playoffs. And I don't know, like I, I just love watching any game I can, which is kind of funny because the Senators are like the only team that I'll watch during the season. But anytime there's playoff games on, I'll be watching the entire entire night. Have there been any surprises for you uh, so far? And who do you have winning it all at this stage? Well, I mean, like at the start of the playoffs, the Athletic kind of asked us, hey, go through your wall to pick brackets and whatever. And, and Mike Stanley Cup was Carolina uh, against Calgary, which is looking mm. a little bit uh, precarious. Well, certainly on the Calgary side, looks precarious. Mm. Carolina looks like a Jekyll and Hyde team. Um, uh, you know, uh, w- we should have learned our lesson before uh, that un- until somebody beats Tampa Bay yeah. in a best seven series, they're they're the champs for a reason. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, though, like if like there's nothing been overly surprising about the playoffs. It's been very entertaining. I've loved it. The one thing I would say is I would love to see a Final Four. I mean, no disrespect. Look, I picked Carolina to win the Cup, so I don't mean disrespect to anybody who likes the Hurricanes. But wouldn't you love to see a best-of-seven series with Igor Shosturkin up against Andre Vasilevsky? You've got a goalie that is likely going to win the Vesna Trophy for the regular season up against the goalie that a lot of people are saying deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as Patrick Waugh and Marty Brodeur and Dominic Hasek and some of these, you know, great goalies of the, uh, the nineties and two thousands. Um, and then on the other side, um, what about Kale McCarr slash Nate McKinnon up against Leon Dreisaitl and uh, Connor McDavid? Like, like if, if you're telling me that's the final four, I think that's the dream scenario for the NHL because then mm-hmm. go ahead and pick 
any combination of the finals amongst those four teams, it's going to be awesome. Tampa Edmonton, Tampa Colorado, Colorado Rangers, Rangers Edmonton. Like, it's it's awesome. Like, everything looks good. So by saying this, I know I've now probably resigned us all to a Carolina-St. Louis Stanley Cup. Like, now, <laughs> just by saying this, we're going to get the Blues yeah. and Hurricanes in, in the Stanley Cup. Man, I mean, I'm just happy that we got the, the Battle of Alberta because, like, a, an L.A. – Dallas series just would have been <laughs> very dull. So I'm I'm super happy we got that. And you know, I remember I picked I think for like multiple years before Tampa won the cup, I would pick be picking Tampa every single year. Uh and then finally I got it right in 2020 when they won. And I think the last two seasons, um, it's been Colorado. Or I guess yeah, I guess the last two seasons. Cause same thing with them. I feel like just inevitably they gotta win one year. Um, but then again, like you said, it's so hard to bet against Tampa Bay. But yeah, I feel like either way, this might actually be one of the best ratings they get for for the final, just because they have so many of these superstar players, and you know you have the the new ESPN and TNT deal. So I feel like the NHL's in a pretty good spot there. Yeah, look, like like the the NHL's always had a hard time, I think, marketing its stars, and and part of that is you know the star players have generally been pretty quiet vanilla guys, right? Like think of, of Sid and think of, um, yeah, you know, McDavid and, you know, some of these generational players haven't necessarily had a ton of personality, but I think what McDavid does on the ice speaks for itself. Like I, look, I, McDavid doesn't have to be, um, you know, you know, Steven Stamkos to me has an amazing personality. He's outgoing. He's fun. Um, you know, Marty Berger had that. Uh, I think PK Subban had that. Uh, but uh, look, McDavid does that on the ice. Like that's fine. So if the like the game has always had a hard time for whatever reason, they like the NHL likes to sell itself as like we are the ultimate team sport, and no one player is bigger than the team. Well, it's like, well, that's not true. Like just look <laughs> at the salaries. Like yes, several players are bigger than their team, and Connor McDavid is one, and I think Kale McCarr and Nate McKinnon are two others. And I think Shosturkin and Vasilevsky are another. Like, let's get those guys into the finals uh, or into the final four. Let's 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 enjoy them. Let's um, let 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 the skill take over. Like, who wouldn't want to see uh, some combination of those four teams I mentioned duking it out for the Stanley Cup and having some fun arguments of, hey, if you had a game seven to win, would you rather have McDavid or Vasilevsky? Maybe we'll get the answer <laughs> to that question up uh, up close and personal in in a few weeks. Man, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I have a couple questions left for you, Ian. Um, one yeah, final my, one my, in my terms battery, of... Yeah, my battery power starting to go. So. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just one one final quick one about the Sens. Why should Sens fans be hopeful for the next 5, 10 years? Um, I think, you know, getting Brady Kachuk, Thomas Shabbat, Drake Batherson all locked up into long-term deals is the type of security you haven't had as a Senators fan in a long time, right? Carlson, Stone, all those guys kind of left at the peak of their powers, and you're going to enjoy Kachuk, Shabbat, Batherson, I suspect Norris, uh, I suspect Stutzla. You're going to get them for the best years of their lives. So enjoy it. Um, Enjoy the fact that this is a fun team. Like, this is a fun, like, we talked about this earlier in the show. Ottawa, we have a reputation for being boring, plain, and Brittany Kachuk and Josh Norris and Timmy Stutzla and Drake Batherson and Thomas Shabbat, Jake Sanderson are anything but 
dull and boring. And I think we should embrace the fact that the youth of that hockey club should represent a kind of fun, fresh start for Ottawa here uh, in the years ahead. And I, I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You can tell they genuinely love the city. Like they, they love playing here. And I think yeah. everybody should be pretty excited about that. It's extremely exciting. I, you know, watching this core has been a lot of fun. Um, I don't know if you have time for this. There's one, there's one question from uh, the third line plug cast. Do you have time for this quick last I, one? Yeah, I think so. Like I'm looking at my, okay. <laughs> okay. Let's do that. And now I have to take my laptop and charge it in another oh, part. God. Okay. But, but, but I'm at seven, looks like 6%. Seven, okay. Okay. It should be, should be okay. Rapid fire version. Um, our friends at the third line plugcast, they ask, um, get Ian to share the story about the time he got a glass of milk sent to Brent Wallace's hotel room. So I don't oh. know if you <laughs> Okay. I will, but now I feel bad telling this story because I, I opened this podcast talking about how Brent just came over to our house and gave us a gas generator, which is the reason yeah. why I'm able to do this podcast. So I'll I'll tread lightly here. But very quickly, uh two thousand and six playoffs, Ottawa played Tampa in uh in the first round. Uh, if memory serves me, Marty Havlat was hurt at the end of that regular season or so- something was up with Marty yep, Havlat yep. going into the, the series against Tampa and we didn't know his status. So we're waiting in the hallway for Marty Havlat, me, Brent Wallace, his camera guy, my camera guy, some other reporters. And Brent thinks it's funny. He He's swinging his TSN microphone around by its, uh, you know, by the wire. And he hits me right in the, you know where, like right hard. <laughs> and I go down, like I'm, I'm in pain. I'm like, oh my god! Like, and then sure enough, Marty Havlat walks right into the scrum. I look like an idiot. I'm double over. <laughs> I can barely speak. I'm like, I'm gonna get this guy back, okay? Like, I'm gonna get Brent back. But I'm like, how? How do I get this guy back? So we go to Tampa for that series. I think we would have been there for games three and four. We're staying at the West End Hotel in Tampa, and I'm on the same floor as Brent. And we were out after a game. We come back to the room. We. uh we go to our rooms and I wait for him to go to his room and I go into my room and then I pop back out of my room because on everybody's door, they used to leave. I don't think they do this anymore. And it's not even just a COVID thing. It's just they don't do this anymore. But they used to leave a little flyer on your door that if you wanted breakfast delivered to your room the next morning, you would fill out this form and leave it on your door handle. And then at like 4 or 5 a.m., somebody from guest services would just peruse the hallway like, oh, this person wants this. And they just grab it. Mm. Okay. So I decide to fill out Brent's card and leave it on his door. But I don't want to have a big breakfast. Like, that's just a waste of food and and, and, and the workers' money. Like, I, I don't want that to happen. That That's not cool. But I, I was like, I want this guy to be woken up at 6 a.m. So I grabbed the sheet of paper, and I just took the, a pen, and I clicked one glass of milk. <laughs> and I picked the delivery time of 6 a.m. And so he, I put it on his door. And sure enough, the next morning, they came. They got it. They knocked on his door. At 6 a.m., he opens his door, and there's a guy standing there. Here's your milk, sir. And he, he comes to the rink, and he's, lift, he's livid. He's like, hey, somebody effing ordered me a glass. I gave it to that guy. I'm like, yeah. I was like, next time, don't hit me in the, in the nutsack with your microphone. So, oh, my God. Yeah. So anyway, Amazing there's the – there's, and now I'm down to 4%. Just telling that story, I'm down to 4% power. Okay. So, you know what, you know, I love hearing that story and uh, I think we got to wrap it up there. This is a very long episode and I really appreciate it. Um, just, yeah, Ian, as always, thank you so much for taking time out of your, of your busy schedule and having to use a generator. Like, man, oh, yeah. I, we definitely didn't have to do it today, but you know, 
you've always just been incredibly gracious with with me and and others in the sense community and and you know you've been someone for me to to look up to up to over these years and you've also been like very complimentary of my work which has definitely had an impact on me so i'm very happy that i get to finish this final episode with such a respected ind- individual and cheers to what lies ahead well, well, that's you know, it's really nice for uh, for you to say that. And um, ah, listen, I've enjoyed, I've certainly enjoyed like your writing is is, is almost always uh, bang on, and um, you know, you're passionate, but you're also really articulate and, and intelligent. That comes across uh, in in your writing, and so I always I always love reading your stuff, and um, it, it means a lot to me that I get to be your your you know last guest here. But uh, like I said, here's hoping that uh, when they make the playoffs, I want you to restart up the cost per point. <laughs> podcast and fire it up and i'll be uh, i'll be your guest absolutely i can't wait for that day okay awesome well listen right. in, in uh in an ode to brent wallace now my battery is at two percent <laughs> that's a that's a milk joke so all right two yeah. percent we there can we sign off right there thanks okay. so much ian hey listen have uh have a great day thanks for having me on you too thanks one final question that i wasn't able to get to while i was with ian was a question from the hockey lass on Twitter. And she was asking funniest moment of the show. And I don't know, I was thinking about it and there certainly were a ton of like funny moments. Cause it's not, it's not like it's a super serious show, but it's also not like many moments that are going to make us laugh. But I would say the, the funniest or funnest in general was when Colin and I did our, what, what did we even call it? But like we drafted our all time senators teams and then we did a simulation with our teams against each other. And I believe I was down 3 nothing in the series. Maybe it was 3-1, but I, I'm pretty sure it was, I was down 3 nothing. And then I ended up winning four in a row to, uh, to defeat him in that. So even though it was literally just simulating on a computer, it was, it was quite thrilling to have that comeback. So yeah, it was, it was great having Colin as a co-host. And just in, in general, um, I just wanted to, to sign off here by saying, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. You know, thank you to all the listeners, whether you listen to just this episode, some of the episodes, most of them, or all a hundred of them. It truly made my day when someone would leave positive feedback about the show because I knew it was at least giving someone out there good content. And I can still remember thinking about a potential podcast name in the spring of 2016 as I wanted it to be something that only Senators fans would understand. I never had an end goal in mind with the show, but I knew I had a lot to say, and I wanted to see where this would take me. There weren't many Sense podcasts at the time, but now there are honestly so many great ones, like Ian was saying, and frankly, most of them, most of them are better than mine, and I love that the fan base has such a plethora of options out there. And being in hockey media was something that I thought could be a career option for me, although over the years I realized it was just more of a passionate hobby than anything, which is totally fine and is probably the case for most people. With that being said, although I wanted to do my best with the podcast, it became increasingly hard to be motivated since this was just for fun and I wasn't trying to bring this to new heights or anything. But bringing Colin in to be my co-host was a nice shot in the arm for the show as he did some incredible work before the 2019 and 2020 drafts. Having him on was great because I didn't need to rely on other on getting other guests all the time and we could essentially record whenever we felt like it, not to mention that I had to edit just half the time now. He, of course, needed his break from social media and following the team, and the past year and a half has certainly been more challenging in terms of producing content. 
I always knew I wanted to get to at least 100 episodes, so I wasn't going to stop before that. However, it wasn't always the easiest to be motivated when one show can be a whole night affair after creating a script, recording, editing, and posting it on the blog. Was I proud of the show? Of course, but at times it felt like a chore, something that I owed my audience, and that's not really what I want in a hobby. Things have changed a lot for me personally since 2016 because, as I said earlier, I used to have some aspirations for sports media as a career, but now I'm a full-time teacher and my goals are much different. I wish I could keep this going, keep getting amazing guests, and expand on this as a whole, but the reality is I just don't feel like I have the time, nor do I have the same joy that I once did from the show. I'm so happy that I got to interview so many amazing people, and I love being able to say that I got to 100 episodes, but now it's time to step back or as Ian would say, at least until they make the playoffs. I won't completely close the door on the cost per point cast since I might want to have a random episode here or there over the years if there's something I'm dying to talk about, but I'll definitely be taking quite a while off, so for all intents and purposes, this is my last show. Thank you to the listeners for keeping the show going. Thank you to Colin for being a fantastic co-host. Thank you to all the great guests over the years. Thank you to Matty Gosens on Twitter for the phenomenal logo. Thank you to my roommate and family who have, who have had to listen to me essentially talk to myself in my room. Thank you to the Senators for always having things to talk about. Just thank you to everyone who has made this possible. And for one final time, adios. <laughs>